Hello and welcome into week number three of the Rookie Stripes podcast here on Racing News Now. I'm Garth Allen. My esteemed colleague, I need to find a better word than esteemed colleague every week, but I'll come up with something better by next week. My esteemed colleague over here to my right is Mr. Tyler Guthrie. How's it going today? Well, we got the direction of the camera placement right this time. I'm actually to your right. I had the direction correct last time, too. Yeah, we had to think about it for a little bit. I had to think about it, but I got it right. We got a whole lot of Daytona to talk about, and then the last ride of Fontana next week. So let's get into it. Yes, let's get. First, I do want to point out that one thing I have learned in knowing Tyler as long as I have known him is he is an avid Dr. Pepper drinker. But if you're on the video version right now, you will see that he is colluding with the enemy um, by wearing a not Dr. Pepper shirt. How could you do this to the love of your life, Tyler? Well, the Dr. Pepper shirt's in the wash. Do you actually have legitimate, a Dr. Pepper shirt, Legitimate too? excuse, I do have a Dr. Pepper shirt. <laughs> I didn't even know that was... I didn't know you had one. That's hilarious. Okay, then. I have a legitimate excuse this time. How many other pop shirts do you have? The only two. I just Dr. Pepper Okay, spray. that's disappointing, then. I was hoping you had, like, a whole line of them. You had, like, a Coke, a Pepsi, a root beer. Well, I want a Coke one. Yeah? But... Every time I go to Target and try to find the Coke one, it's in the wrong size or something. Well, there's your problem. You're going to Target and now for Chase clothes. Chase Elliott's got a Coke sponsorship, so now I'm never going to find a Coke shirt anywhere because everybody's going to buy it. I don't know about that. Chase Elliott might be popular, but I don't know that he's that popular. They're not going to go to every Target everywhere and buy every single Coke shirt. You'd be surprised. I don't know that that's something I would be surprised about. Well, I would be surprised if it happened, but that's not something I'm going to be surprised about, I don't think. Enough about Chase Elliott and Coca-Cola. Let's start talking about Daytona. Yes, let's talk about Daytona, because there were four races this weekend, and there was a lot of things happening. So first off, um, you are the results guy, uh, Tyler, so you made yourself that after the clash. So we're going to keep you as the results guy. And we're going to start off with the Arca race. A big win for Greg Von Alst in this race. Uh, I'm stalling for time here because I'm guessing Tyler did not pull up the results just yet. So I'm giving him time to pull them up. Uh, (laughs) Big win for Greg Von Alst in this race. Exciting finish to this race. Pulling out with the run. Going into turn three. It was almost like Jason White put up a parachute when he went around him. Um which makes me wonder if Jason White wasn't really all that fast. He just happened to be at the front of the line. And then as soon as Van Alst made a move, all of a sudden the parachute went out and Jason White went very quickly in reverse back to where that car should have been speed-wise. Nevertheless, though, Jason White came home very close to a Daytona victory, but instead had to settle for ninth. Fell from first to ninth from turn three to the start-finish line. So, disappointment for Jason White, but big, big day for Greg Von Alst. Tyler, this was, before we get into the actual results, this was your first um, ARCA race you have, I think you said last week this would be the first ARCA race you've ever watched. So, what were your thoughts on this? Well, actually, I thought the ARCA race is probably the best race to watch of the whole weekend. Even though it was only 80 laps, it was still fairly action-packed 
it wasn't really that much of a wreck fest. There were a couple wrecks, but it was mostly one or two cars and nothing that took out the whole field. And it was interesting to watch the whole time that pretty much double file at least the whole race. And it, it was kind of nerve-wracking to watch. They looked like they tried to crash every time they came out of turn four and everybody was kind of sliding around. But for the most part, fairly clean and interesting to watch. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I think that, and I didn't think I would say this at least anytime soon, that the ARCA Daytona race was the best race of the weekend. I, I didn't think I'd be saying that anytime soon, given the recent history of that race. But holy crap, was that a good race. I was not prepared for how good of a race that was. And I said this on the Rewind show uh, on Sunday that I think a lot of the reason for that was because Venturini Motorsports didn't dominate this race like they have for the past few years. They had fast cars, but they never really got established at the front of the pack like they have in years past. And I think that was the difference in this race because you didn't have them just lining up on the bottom and basically making the great wall of Venturini out front and not letting anyone even have a chance to get up there. So we saw a lot of different names up there that we don't normally see at the front of these races. Jason Kitzmiller spent a lot of time out front in this race. He ran a really good race. Jason White was up front late. And then, of course, Greg Von Alst ends up winning the race. Scott Melton even seemed to have a fast car early, and then, unfortunately, he got taken out in his very early accident, which was very unfortunate to see, as that car really doesn't seem to run up front a lot. Um, Will Kimmel's had a couple good runs in that car lately, but overall, that 69 car, at least in recent years, has not had all that much speed. So it was good to see Scott Melton having some speed, even though it was taken away very quickly from him. Well, let's give you a top 10 rundown. Uh, Greg Van Alst winning. Uh, second place, Connor Mosick. Mosack. Third, Mosack, okay. <laughs> Sean Corr in third place, which at the beginning of the race, I thought his last name was Carr. <laughs> but <laughs> okay. pretty much last to third for Sean Corr. Yeah, Fourth because he got, he got stuck with uh, Amber Balkan. Balkan had a mechanical issue in qualifying, so they end up wrecking and qualifying and both had to go to the back. It was fun to watch him come through the field. Fourth in LeVar Scott. Fifth, Mandy Chick. Sixth, Amber Balkan. Seventh, Jesse Love. He was your pick to win the race, wasn't he? He was. Eighth, Jack Wood. Ninth, Jason White. And rounding out your top ten, Dale Quarterly. Now, there were a lot of drivers that I want to give shout-outs to in that top ten. LeVar Scott, Mandy Chick, Amber Balkin. Great runs for all of them. I was not expecting to see much out of Mandy Chick specifically. I didn't know what kind of equipment she would have or what she would be able to do, but she ran a very solid race. LeVar Scott, for his first time in an ARCA car period, and it's at Daytona, and he spent a lot of time up front in this race. Makes me think that LeVar Scott is a pretty talented dude, and we're going to see a lot out of LeVar Scott soon. I think he's going to win a decent amount of East races this season and very well could win the East Championship this season in that rev car. Would not surprise me a bit. And then Amber Balkin in sixth. Shout out to her. Career best finish. I've said this many, many times that I wanted to see what she could do in a Venturini car that I think she could do well. 
She was competitive. And I don't know that she was ever challenging for the lead at any point in this race, but she was fighting her way from the rear from the very beginning. So she had a lot of ground to make up from the beginning. She held her own, made a good run, and came home with a solid almost top five finish in a career best sixth. I think Amber showed in this race that I, I I don't know that I'm ready to say she's an elite talent yet by any means or that she's even a great talent. But I am I think I am ready to say that she does have talent and that in the right equipment, like a Venturini car, she can do some things. Now unfortunately she's only got sponsorship for Daytona and Talladega right now, so Hopefully, she gets some more sponsorship to run some more races this year and can continue to prove that she has that talent. But for now, it's just Daytona and Talladega, so we'll see what she can do at Talladega, and hopefully that's not the last time we see her this season. Now, I think it was fairly encouraging to see Amber at least challenging with the top pack for the entire race. Um, it seemed like I mean, she started kind of back in the pack, but... As soon as she got to the front, she stayed there and was pretty competitive the whole race. And Mandy Chick starting almost at the back, coming up to the front. And it was encouraging, I think, to just see them there the whole race. And it wasn't like a, nobody really lucked into a Daytona finish in the Arca series. No, not at all. And this also brings up a point that I made a lot last year. And it's going to sound like I'm beating a dead horse. If you were around last year, you saw a lot of my Rewind shows last year, you probably know what I'm about to say. Tony Bridinger finished 23rd in this race in a Venturini car. Never had any issues. Just wasn't fast. She ran a full season for Venturini last year. And I, I'm, I'm going to double-check this stat before I say it because I'm not 100% sure on this. But I do believe... Nope, clicked on the wrong name. Good old racing reference. Uh, again, Doc just wants to be a part of the podcast. He's back here making all this noise. She had a total of six top tens last year. Zero top fives in arguably the best car in the field in a not very competitive field and cracked the top 10 six times in 20 races and in those cases it was barely in the top 10 and never cracked the top five but then you've got amber balkan who ran fairly similar to tony last year in what I kept saying was much lesser equipment. The 30 car for Red Jones last year was not anywhere close to on par with a Venturini car. Amber Balkan gets in a Venturini car for this race and is competitive in it when Tony still is not competitive. And it's going to sound like I'm just ragging on Tony Bridinger. I am to an extent, but I'm... At this point, I'm a little tired of seeing someone like her get opportunities when you've got, just because she's a female and just because she's got money, when you've got other females out here that 
are proving that they can do better in the same equipment, and they can do much better in the same equipment. Amber just proved that that equipment can run well with a female, and Tony hasn't put up the results. I just... When is it going to be enough? When is she going to stop getting opportunities when she hasn't earned them? Am I... Am I wrong on this? Am am I am I going too hard on her? Like I, or, or I, what do you think? I get where you're coming from, and I think this is a motorsports problem as a whole, not just a Venturini problem or just an Arca problem. I think a lot of drivers are in places that they don't deserve to be just because of money backing, and you see this in. Cup Series, Xfinity Series, Truck Series, even Truck Series owners sometimes just getting equipment that they don't really deserve because they have a status symbol or money. And I don't want to rag on anybody or say that they're bad at driving because I'm sitting on a podcast and not flying home from (laughs) Daytona right now. But it is kind of unfortunate to see in series where especially the cup series where there's so many chartered teams and it's so hard for people to get into the series in the first place it's it's tough to watch drivers not do well repetitively knowing there's other drivers in other series that are faster drivers or have just not as good equipment and just knowing that there's nothing we can do about it because of the almighty dollar well so let's let's think about this. There's a lot of drivers that get hate because they are quote unquote pay drivers, that they're only in a in a ride because they've got the money. But at the same time, I I feel like with the way that Tony runs, it's almost like she's another level of pay driver. Because if you look at pay driver let's take the Cup series, for example. There's a lot of hate on social media, and I'm not I'm not saying that I agree with this. I'm just saying that there is hate on social media for Bubba Wallace, for people saying that he doesn't deserve the ride that he's in. He's at least won races in that car. He has gone out and been competitive in that 2311 car. Paul Menard was a very, quote-unquote, famous pay driver in the Cup Series. He was in the Cup Series because he was... In the Menards family, he had Menard sponsorship. He could go literally anywhere he wanted because he had a blank check from Menards for sponsorship. And he still ran fairly competitively. You could still count on him to bring home a car clean in the top 10, top 15 at the very worst, as long as it was a decent car. If he was in a Childress car or or something like that, and he even won the Brickyard one year. He even beat out Jeff Gordon for that brickyard win. Exactly. So you've got pay drivers, and then you've got Tony, who is paying to be in this ride and is taking up a seat that someone else who who still has money but could be utilizing that car more to its full potential because she's not even getting it close to its full potential and never has from the moment that she got in one of those cars. And I don't understand why that hasn't become clear yet. I, 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 I don't even understand why they're still backing for her at this point. 
you know, sponsorship and motor racing, and we kind of alluded to this earlier in the week, sponsorship and motor racing as a whole is just, it's not at all what it used to be, and I don't know if there's anything anybody can do to fix that, but it's frustrating to watch. It is. It is very frustrating. Where It's the best car in the field, and it, it could be utilized so much better by someone that has that that could be up there running well, running top five, top ten, competing for, for wins, and instead it's being run around in twentieth every week. It just it doesn't make any sense to me. Well, let's move away from that a little bit. You got anything else to mention for the Arca race? Oh, I got a couple other things to mention for the Arca race. First off, back on a lighter note, shout out to Frankie Munez. Frankie Munez surprised me how well he ran in this race. I believe he was as high as like third at one point was very competitive in this race, very fast, and ended up in 11th, but that's not necessarily indicative of where he ran a lot of the day and makes me optimistic for what we're going to see from him for the rest of the season. I think he might surprise us and run better than uh, at least what I was expecting him to run this season. Yeah, I agree. He did pretty well. Um another one of those cars that kind of hung around the top 10, 15, the whole race. And I think for Daytona, as, as far as super speedway races go, if you can hang around in the top 10 or 15 cars, the whole race, you've got a pretty strong car and you know what you're doing. You can come from the back and go to the front through strategy or just getting lucky with a push. But if you can stay there, that shows me that you're a good car and a good driver. You know what you're doing. And seeing people like Frankie Muniz in the top 10, 15, most of the race, and even 11th place finish, I don't think that's indicative of anything at Daytona, really. Right. As long as you're in the top 10 or 15 cars at the end of the race and not wrecked, I think you've done pretty well at Daytona. Definitely. Now, the other thing that I want to talk about with the ARCA race is the incident from lap uh, what was that, like 40, 41, somewhere in there, somewhere around halfway in the race, uh, the where the leaders are coming up on the lapped car of A.J. Moyer, the 06 Wayne Peterson car. He's running around on the bottom through turn three and four. The leaders come to go around the outside of him. He's not holding the inside line very well, slid up kind of a half a lane, then would come back down, then would slide back up again, and made it very hard for anyone trying to pass him to know exactly where he would be, especially as they got more than four or five cars back into the pack and they were double and triple wide. There wasn't a lot of room for him to be dancing around like that. And it ended up causing a wreck uh, with Jesse love spinning out a little bit, getting a little bit of damage just from the contact with the Oh six, but not really a lot of damage. The biggest casualty of this accident being Tim Richmond who spun to the inside, had very hard contact into the inside wall, was able to walk away, was okay, but it ended his day, and it shouldn't have. And I've had this, let's say, conversation on Rewind shows in the past about lapped cars being in the way in ARCA. This is an ongoing problem doesn't seem to have completely gone away. Why was he 
if he was making minimum speed, minimum speed is too low because he was very much slower than the rest of the pack. They caught him so quickly that it was almost dangerous, the closing speed. And then he can't even hold a line on the inside where I've questioned this in the past. I don't understand why cars in ARCA are told to hold the inside in the first place if they're a slow car. We saw cars in the cup race today that uh, Connor Daly, I noticed specifically at one point, that was holding the high line around the corners and everybody was going around him on the inside. And that seemed like a much safer, smarter alternative than trying to hold the bottom and not even being able to hold the bottom. Arca clearly hasn't completely cleaned up this lapped car problem, and I've been told in the past that oh, this isn't something that we control. We can't control how what the lapped cars do. Well, yes, you you kind of can. Um, you can you can raise minimum speed, and I know it, there, Arca has always been like, oh, we want everybody to race with us, and I'm not saying that you should be exclusionary and telling everybody that they have to go home. But there needs to be a set number, one, a a reasonable number for minimum speed, because minimum speed clearly seems to be too low, as this is a recurring problem. Minimum speed needs to be revisited and reevaluated and quite possibly raised. And there needs to be more evaluation on what these back marker cars are doing. I'm not sitting here and saying that these people shouldn't be out here, that the back markers shouldn't be out there because there's some great people driving these back marker cars. I'm not saying that anything about them or their work ethic. What I am saying is ARCA should be held to a higher standard. And when you've got cars out there running what looked like it had to have been 30 to 40 miles an hour slower than the pack at least and can't even hold a line as the pack tries to pass them and is causing a wreck because of that, that needs to be evaluated and looked at into whether these drivers need to be in the field going forward. That's not saying that A.J. Moyer shouldn't be an ARCA, but it. when things like this happen, and we go back to Bristol when I had my, my infamous rant about lapped cars in ARCA, when lapped cars are just in the way and causing problems, that's when it becomes a problem, and that's when... It needs to be looked at, and it needs to be addressed. If they're out there and they're not in the way, I understand they're having their own race. I'm not saying they shouldn't have their own race, but he wasn't racing anybody. He was by himself. All he had to do was hold that yellow line and let the cars pass him and and honestly maybe go a little faster. I know... Maybe that wasn't in the cards for that car, but at the same time, if that car couldn't go any faster than that, it shouldn't have been on the track. Yeah, I kind of agree with you for the most part, but I do think the super speedways as a whole set up a completely set 
different set of problems for minimum speed restrictions. I, I get like certain tracks, like mile and a half tracks that we go to all the time. You can kind of judge minimum speed and just say that it's just slow and there's nothing you can really do about it. But on super speedways, you got to think about where do you set the minimum speed? Because the pack will always be going faster than a single car by mm-hmm. itself. That there's you're never going to change that. Yeah. And I think even in the Cup Series, it's like ten or fifteen mile an hour difference between the pack and single cars. So you can't set a minimum speed based on what the pack is doing because that's just it's an unfair unreasonable assumption to believe that any car should be able to keep up with the pack by itself but i also don't think you should penalize people for getting out of the draft and being by themselves because it's already bad enough (laughs) (laughs) but i i it's a problem for sure but I'm not sure of any ways to quickly fix it. I know IndyCar, for the Indy 500 especially, if you are significantly slower than the field, IndyCar will call you into the pits and tell you to fix it. But also, that is the marquee event of IndyCar. There's a lot more eyes on it, and everybody can tell if somebody's off the pace because, for the most part, the field's pretty close and competitive. But... In, I mean, we've seen it. J.R. Hildebrand in 2010, 2011. Uh, it was 2011. When he came up on lap cars on turn four of the last lap of the race and got too high and went in the wall and finished second in that race. Mm-hmm. It, it's extremely frustrating to see, especially leaders, get taken out by lap cars. Especially if it's not their fault, you know? Like... I understand experience is worth a lot in a lot of racing, but you can't tell me you're getting too much experience riding around 20 mile an hour slower in the field. No. On, on the bottom, the whole pack was running the bottom two lanes the entire race, and then you expect a lap car to hold the bottom when their car is clearly not handling well anyway. Mm-hmm. And I don't think any of the ARCA cars were handling well no. at all. <laughs> all of them looked like they were about to crash every lap. And then you have to expect the whole field to navigate around the high side of a lap car that can't hold the bottom. Honestly, I'm surprised only two cars got wrecked in mm-hmm. that. I think that could have been a whole lot worse and... I'm not really sure how to fix it because you can't tell a lap car to just look in their mirror the entire race, see the field, and just go straight to the high side. But I do think there should be escape routes somehow. Maybe like a tapered apron or something. That way you can still be quick but not in the racing line. Because if you're coming off of the back straight and you go down to turn three and stay on the apron, you're... Either going to have to go 120 mile an hour or go straight into the field. Well, that's the other thing, too, though. I don't know that he was going that much over 120 to begin with. Like, that's how drastic the closing speed was. So I don't know that he would have had to let off that much to just run the apron through three and four. And I think that would have been the solution to that, the easy solution. 
if he didn't think he could hold the top without getting into the wall, I think that would have been the easy solution there. But I guess hindsight is twenty twenty. Uh, if you're him, you're not necessarily thinking about that. You're thinking, oh, I can just hold the bottom, and then all of a sudden you can't hold the bottom. But at the same time, that can't be the first time in the day that he couldn't hold the bottom. He had to know how his car was handling, and you would think the thought would have crossed his mind at some point. What if the leaders pass me in a corner and I can't hold the bottom? I need to have a, I need to have a plan for this. You know. Yeah, and I I think this should be a, not a driver by driver solution. I think this should be a series wide, not even just ARCA NASCAR as a whole need to figure out a solution for lap cars being slow and in the way because i i know in a lot of the higher series now they've got the crash clock as far as if your car is in a wreck and you get on pit road and start fixing it you've got x amount of time to fix it and get the minimum speed but you still have cars way slower than the field at not just daytona this happens pretty much everywhere and i think you can't expect a driver, everybody's extremely competitive. They wouldn't be in the racing series they're in if they weren't competitive. You can't expect a driver to just call timeout and drive off to the side of the track. But, at the same time, there needs to be something set in place for if you are slower than the field. This is what you do to get out of the way. And I think th- this isn't just a driver problem. I think this needs to be addressed in the driver's meeting probably before the race. And anybody that's saying for lapped cars to hold the bottom at Daytona, when for the most part they're single or double file hugging the yellow line the entire race, I, I think there's a bit of a problem there. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing. And I, and I want to be clear on that is I've heard conflicting stories as to what lapped cars exactly are told in, in terms of what line to hold. I've been told that they are strictly told hold the bottom no matter what track it is. Just hold the bottom. But I've also been told that they are told to hold what be predictable, pick a line, and hold whatever line you have been running all day. And the, and that's the thing. That's where I think A.J. Moyer falters in this situation is not being predictable. He tries to hold the bottom, and he can't hold the bottom, so he's not being predictable as to where he's going to be in the track so they don't know exactly where to pass him. Right, and I think it it's a lot different to hold the bottom by yourself than when the field's going by you on the outside. 30 to 40 mile an hour faster than you. Mm-hmm. I think mean, there's probably a lot of air handling with the car that was getting in. Because he seemed okay until they started going by him, and then the back end just started stepping out. And I'm not sure of a solution for that, but it would be nice to see that get addressed in the future. I don't know. I don't know what their ideas are for lap cars, but just take a look at it. See, and I've always had a contention with the ARCA's whole um, ideology of we want everybody to come race with us, whether they're someone 
looking to climb the ladder to be a professional or there's someone that's just looking out here to have fun and kind of play race car driver. That's not their words, but that's essentially what it is. Um, and that's not to discredit any of these guys at all, but um, I just feel like there's other series that you could be a part of. No, you can't probably can't go to Daytona or something like that in these other series, but you're also not putting in jeopardy a high stakes national series race that is three steps off of the top of the NASCAR ladder and that has national eyeballs on it on Fox Sports 1. There's there's other places that uh, you can go for that kind of experience to if you just want to to drive a race car for a little bit, but you're not looking to make a full career out of it. There's other series you can go to that, to be quite honest, are probably more cost effective because uh, from what I've heard, the financials of running an ARCA car right now are not the best returns and it's not something that you're going to make any kind of money whatsoever at it's just going to be a money pit for the most part so i don't know it, it i don't know that there's a there's a solution to it necessarily that that us two idiots can come up with but i don't know i i feel like there's got to be a better solution to it somehow well, I don't want to rag on Daytona too much because I know it. Daytona's been an important part of NASCAR for the entirety of NASCAR, but it is kind of one of just the hazards of the track and how it races now. Because as soon as one person gets sideways, there's potentially get twenty or thirty cars in a wreck, regardless of where or who or why, and. It's very frustrating for me to watch Daytona. I know during the race, it, it's always exciting to see people in double, triple file racing is always exciting to watch. But at the end of every Daytona race I watch, and Talladega, I, like, the race is awesome. And then at the end, you sit back and you're like, that was one of the most disappointing things. Because you see this all the time. Nobody does anything wrong. Somebody spins... Everybody pays for yep. it. And there's nothing you can do to fix that just because of how the track is. And now we got away from the tandem racing because everybody hated that. And now it's all pack racing. But as soon as something goes wrong, there's a lot of stuff going wrong for a lot of people. And there's just nothing you can do to fix it. And I think that is exactly why you and I agree that the ARCA race was the best race of the weekend because it wasn't a crash fest. You didn't have the entire field wadded up at one point or another for senseless purposes because everybody's just trying to drive through each other and it's all about bump drafting in two lanes now. The ARCA race was, for the most part, fairly clean. Like you said, there was a couple wrecks, but nothing huge. It was mostly fairly clean and mostly real good fairly traditional pack racing and it was refreshing to see it, it wasn't the some of the stupid stuff that we saw 
in Cup or Xfinity or trucks throughout the weekend. It was just good pack racing. Yeah, and I'd have to agree. ARCA was definitely the best race of the weekend. Not even just because of that, but most of the fields seemed fairly competitive, I thought. Um, you had people that came and went throughout the race, but it was really nice to finally see a super speedway race that nobody's going to make a huge crash compilation out of. And I think this is one of my big problems with Daytona. I know Daytona is important to the series, and it's always going to be that way, and Daytona 500 is always going to be the marquee event NASCAR. However, it is hard, I think, to appeal to new viewers, especially people overseas, like NASCAR is trying to get European viewers and stuff like that. You can't go from Formula One, where there was one pack crash at Belgium, like, 20-something years ago, and people still talk about it, yeah. and then expect them to come and watch Daytona, and even if, they, even if they've gotten to the point where they've got a favorite driver in the field, it, there's a potluck chance that your driver is just going to get taken out at some random point in the race. For no reason. Well, and I'm by William Byron fan in Cup Series, and I think I mentioned this to you earlier, I think it's just sad that with 60 laps to go in the race, I was like, wow, Byron hasn't gotten crashed yet because it's happened every year at the Daytona 500. And I don't think a single one of them were his fault. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very frustrating with so many eyes on Daytona. You get all the off-season buildup, and you come off the championship weekend. Next week, they're already talking about Daytona's whatever day. Get ready for it. And then you spend all this time, all this money, and watch three-quarters of the race, and then none of it mattered anyway because you all got taken out. And this that is actually one of the big reasons why I don't have a favorite driver anymore. Part of it is because I am media, so I try to stay unbiased as much as possible, but I don't want to get wrapped up in one or two drivers just to get frustrated that, oh, they wrecked this week and, oh, they wrecked this week and I've had no luck with my drivers. I, I, this is, this is terrible. I can't watch this. No, Speaking I have luck with drivers. If mm -hmm. we pick your favorite driver to win the race any week for the rest of the season, like if your driver is our weekly favorite to win the race, just don't even tune in because we went one for it <laughs> yep. <eight> this week. <laughs> yeah, our picks did not go well this week. Um, but yeah, the at this point, I am just a fan of racing, and I just want to see good racing. And I don't feel like we get that a lot at Daytona right now because this current super speedway package, it just ain't it, Chief. It just ain't it. We'll probably it. revisit this about eight more times during the podcast, especially when we talk about the Cup Series. Yep. But anything else you got on ARCA or move to trucks? No, I don't think that's it. I think we can safely move on to the uh, the next Air Energy 250 from Friday. So we'll rewind now to Friday night as the ARCA race was on Saturday afternoon. Friday night for the truck race, next Air Energy 250. Big win for Zane Smith. He goes back-to-back -back in this race after winning 
last year's race, starting off his championship run in the trucks last year. Could that mean he is going to win the championship again this year? Very distinct possibility. Disappointment, though, for Christian Eckes, who I thought it was hilarious. They interviewed him under the rain delay, and he says if Zane Mickey Mouses his way into this one. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious that he actually uh, he went there. And I, I think I saw either on Twitter or Instagram, maybe both, he took a picture with Zane after the race and just captioned it, me and Mickey Mouse. <laughs> <laughs> so, but a good run for Christian Eckes, nonetheless. Um, honestly, I think he had the fastest truck in this race, uh, which kind of surprised me. That that MHR truck was fairly fast last year with Derek Krause, but it wasn't like the best truck in the field. Whereas I feel like Christian was the best truck in the field on Friday night and quite possibly could have won this race had it gone to completion. Unfortunately, we didn't get that, though. And we'll run through the uh, top ten here real quick. Zane Smith getting the win. Tanner Gray in second place. Christian Eckes in third. Fourth, Colby Howard. Fifth, Grant Enfinger. Sixth, Ty Majeski. Seventh, Tyler Ankrum. Eighth, Corey Heim. Ninth, Matt Crafton. And tenth, Chase Elliott. Chase uh, Elliott was one that surprised me, too. I Being in the same team as Christian Eckes in this race but was never really competitive I I don't know why that would have been you would think they would have had fairly similar trucks until the end of the race exactly like he hovered around 10th most of the race like that was about as high as he got and it really didn't make any sense to me why he just wasn't competitive like one that stood out to me uh Ty Majeski in that 98 Ford this is his first season in that team it's a strong showing for first season with new team. Second season with that team, just a different car number. Okay. So probably the same crew, just literally a different car number. Um, I hate it when they do that. Yeah. He was in the 66 truck for them last year. but I didn't even know it was the same team. Yep. Well, they don't have the 66 this year. They moved him to the 98 and got rid of the 66. So... We'll make a bloopers reel at the end of the season. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there we go. All of Tyler's mistakes. Only Tyler. Garth is perfect. Garth never yeah. makes mistakes. Garth is awesome. That's right. That's what they tell me, at least. I'm not sure who tells you that. Yeah, it's definitely not anybody in the ARCA world. That is for sure. <laughs> what else do we have to talk about the truck series? Uh good That's start to it. the season for nick sanchez <laughs> starting on the pole uh unfortunately didn't get the finish that i think he deserved but ran top 10 a lot of the night showed a lot of speed uh, i think we're gonna see some good things out of nick sanchez this year now that he's moved up to trucks the reigning arca champion um you can't really see it at the moment actually i don't oh you can kind of see it there if i move the the chair um the uh the championship diecast for Nick Sanchez for last season. So uh, repping Nick on the uh, the set now, but good run for him nonetheless, even if it wasn't a great finish. And I, I thought this was a decent race overall. We just never really got much green flag racing in this one. It was, you'd go about five to 10 laps and there'd be another caution, whether it be for rain, for a wreck, for a stage end. And they never really got a good rhythm going in this race. So, I mean, 
because of that, it wasn't as good of a race as it could have been. Yeah, and obviously the rain shortening the end of the race kind of puts a damper on any kind of finish that could have been, but nothing really happened. There wasn't a huge wreck for the most part. Um, more just a couple cars getting tangled up and rain and all that. But yeah, not a lot of rhythm, just nothing really happened. Not a lot to talk about. No, not really. I mean, I, that's about all I got to talk about with trucks. I don't know about you, Tyler, but I think we've about covered everything with that race. Yeah, I didn't even get to watch the whole race, so <laughs> I don't have a lot to talk about with it either. Well, that's true. Tyler was out making money. Um, so was I, but I was watching it while I was making money. So, um, Tyler, you're slacking. Yeah. <laughs> Moving to the Xfinity Series, a lot to talk about at the end of the Xfinity Series race. I thought that was a fairly decent race interesting for the most part they did get single file for a little bit but i do like how the xfinity series it was a 300 mile race instead of the daytona being 500 for the cup series i think the 300 miles was a lot more entertaining than the cup series 500 miles has been in years because there were a couple times that they got stretched out and i'm not sure if they ever made a green flag pit stop sequence but it wasn't just single file line for multiple laps in a row. They did it for maybe 20 or 30 laps, but that's about it. Which, for Daytona, I understand you're going to have to ride around a little bit just to be there at the end of the race, but you can't have a 60-lap green flag run where everybody's running single file. That's just frustrating to watch. It is, um, and I, I understand the the strategy behind it, Um it's just kind of the nature of the beast, unfortunately, especially with how much these races are wreck-filled anymore. If you're going to get taken out in a wreck, you at least want to make it close to the end before that happens, and you don't want to get taken out in that wreck on lap 60. Uh, but I do agree it does get a little boring watching that, but I don't know that that can really be fixed outside of just somehow finding a way for these not to be as big a wreck fest, but I don't know if that's even a realistic possibility at this point. So I think it's just something you got to live with, but I think you're right. I do really like the length of the Xfinity race. Um, there was that short little stretch there near the end where they single filed out for a little bit, but for the most part, it was decent racing. Um, it wasn't, too long to where they single filed out for a long time like the 500 but um yeah i think it was it was about the perfect length um i'll go through the top 10 real quick uh i still can't take the sponsorship for this race seriously beef the, it's, beef, what's, for it's dinner. what's for dinner 300 at daytona first place austin hill i think he had an awesome race he was fun to watch and mm -hmm. i'd like to expand more on that in a little bit second john hunter niedermacek he did pretty well towards the end of the race, too. Uh, Justin Allgaier in third. He's going to be the big talking point for this race. Partzer Retzloff? Retzloff? Retzloff. Retzloff. And fifth, Myatt Snyder. Sixth, Riley Herbst, somehow. Seventh, Joe Graff Jr. Eighth, Ryan Sieg. Ninth, Cole Custer, back in the Xfinity Series. And in tenth, Justin Haley. Austin Hill, I... Gotta say, that was probably one of the most 
entertaining single car Daytona fight or Daytona races I've seen in quite a while. Radio issues at the beginning of the race started from the back. He was up to ninth at least by the end of the first stage. Just he won the shot. first stage, didn't he? Or he did win the first stage. Yeah. yeah, just shot through the field like nobody's even in his way, and got shuffled back once or twice and came back to the front again. Just heck of a race for Austin Hill, and I was really glad to see him get the win. I know probably Justin Allgaier kind of deserved it with the caution light fiasco at the end, but Austin Hill, good to see him get the win after such a good race. And the JRM teammates. You got Austin Hill and then four JRM cars, and none of the JRM cars win the race. How does that happen, Garth? That happens because Justin Allgaier got a little too selfish there with, uh, what was it, three to go? Uh, jumps out of line. It, so basically, the JRM cars were two, three, four, five, following Austin Hill for that entire time that they were single-file logging laps. I had assumed that the strategy there was with two to go or something like that, they were all going to train by him, and then they were going to settle it amongst themselves and kind of try to ensure a, a junior motorsports victory and maybe even a, a one, two, three, four finish for the company. Instead, with three to go, Justin Allgaier goes, nah, fam, I'm going for this win. I'm not letting Josh Berry take this. Uh, and basically screws up that entire strategy and... I don't want to say he lost it for the team, but I think if he had stayed in line and let them train by, he actually would have been in the right spot because unless they trained by Austin Hill going into turn three on the last lap, he would have been in the best spot because he would have been in second and he could have jumped around Josh Berry in turn three on the last lap. So, think he got a little too overzealous and jumped a little too soon and essentially screws over his whole team because he was the only one of them left at the end he makes the move gets followed by brandon jones they go by barry and mayor barry and mayor come back on the backstretch barry jumps to the inside jones goes to block jones spins himself off of barry that causes the caution so you've got one jrm card down now because of how all that played out. Then that sends us into overtime. Josh Berry runs out of fuel under caution. So you're down two JRM cars now. Well, we go into overtime. Allgaier and Mayer get out to first and second. Allgaier gets too far out in front. Mayer gets a run as he would with Allgaier too far out in front. Jumps to the outside. Almost takes the lead. Comes back down to block Austin Hill, but blocks too late and ends up getting spun to the outside wall and flipped on his lid, and that would end the race just a few seconds too late for Justin Allgaier to be the winner. So, honestly, I like Justin Allgaier, but I think he made a very dumb move here and kind of got what he deserved with making that move, if we're being honest. Yeah, I'd have to agree that he definitely got what he deserved there. I, I do understand... Where, why Justin Algar did what he did on, like, three to go. Um, following Josh Berry and Austin Hill for 20-something laps could not have been the most entertaining thing that he did all day. And it is frustrating to watch the single-file laps just keep ticking off. We got 
less than 10 to go and we're still running single file and even the TV commentators are talking about it. you know the JRM teammates are going to kick Austin Hill out of the way as soon as they get their opportunity but you just see them in a single line for so long and no, nobody do anything about it and then at the end it's not even at all what they thought was going to happen and I'd be interested to see, hear what those team meetings are like this week <laughs> just to see who's angry because I think Allgaier was angry that Barry never passed Hill because even even if they had passed Austin Hill with 10 or 15 laps to go, I don't really think there were a whole lot of people in the pack that could have shot Austin Hill back to the front, passed mm. all four of them. I think the four of them together probably could have held off the pack and not had to deal with Austin Hill at all. So I'm not sure why they waited so long, but I think that's what Justin Allgaier was thinking and kind of figured, well, if Josh Berry's not going to go for it, then I will. And then unfortunate events seceded that. I think the thinking was wait as long as possible to ensure that he couldn't get back up there because what happens if the entire field gangs up on the bottom and the JRM cars are the only ones out there, then that's going to be a problem with 15 to go. So you wait until two to go or maybe even the last lap to make that move to get all four of you around Austin Hill. And this is why I don't understand why Allgaier did what he did with three to go because unless that move isn't made until let's say going into turn three on the last lap, unless Barry takes that long to pull out and pass Austin Hill, Justin Allgaier is in the perfect spot at that point, because when you kick Austin Hill out, that makes Barry the leader Allgaier second. Allgaier is then in the perfect position to then wait until turn three on the last lap and make the move take a run, make the move, and he probably wins in that situation. But instead, he jumped too early, and not only essentially in the end screwed himself over, he screwed the entire team over, more or less. It was more just funny to watch than anything. Yeah, it, it really was. The The downfall of Junior Motorsports from, from being uh, four out of the top five and an 80% chance of winning that race to a 0% chance by the end of it. It it was incredible how they just botched that completely. And then the, another NASCAR timing and scoring sort of fiasco at the end of the race where they couldn't decide where they hit the button to throw the yellow, and then apparently the when they hit the button is not when the lights turn on, and I think that's another problem that should be talked about because if you're throwing the caution but the drivers don't know it's under yellow now because the lights aren't going off, maybe we should revisit that and have the lights flash at the same time they hit the so-called button. I think that's more of the TV booth not understanding how that system works because from what I saw, NASCAR has a camera system that is synced with the caution button. So what they did to figure out where the moment of caution was, was they went through frame by frame on that camera until the point that the caution came out. Now, I I can't speak to how well that button is synced up with the lights. I always assumed it was synced 100%. The TV broadcast seemed to act like that it wasn't. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, I feel like it's not. But 
the way NASCAR determined what that moment of caution was was through that camera system that is synced with the moment that the button was pushed. And they shared the picture on social media uh, of that what that actual moment of caution was with that camera. And Hill was only out in front by a few inches, if that. It wasn't very but, much, uh, but it was uh, over John Hunter Nemechek. But even then, John Hunter Nemechek was under the double yellow line, so... He got forced there, though. Oh, that's true. I hate that rule. Right, because if he hadn't gone under there, he'd have he'd have turned Allgaier, because Allgaier was coming down the track, and, he, and Nemechek had enough of a run that he couldn't just let out of it, so it was either go under the yellow line or turn Allgaier. Just a wacky finish to that race. And... Very. I, I Another thing I'd like to mention about that... When did they decide that, oh, wow, Sam Mayer's upside down. Maybe we should throw the yellow. <laughs> yeah, they did take a little longer than I would have figured when he's on his roof. I mean, it was a solid, I don't know, 10 seconds that he was on his roof before they called the caution. It was yeah, a the little... The field was already completely by, and yeah. nobody else was going to hit him by the time they threw the yellow. And I understand they got a car upside down, so they want to make sure they can get all the safety vehicles over there without the field smashing into them at 190 mile an hour. But at the same time, isn't it fairly obvious that you're going to need to throw the yellow as soon as he starts flipping? Well, yeah, and that's the thing. And I don't know why they didn't, because they have in the past. And that's one thing that they have been adamant about, because people get on them for being inconsistent with when they throw the caution. And that's one thing they've said in the past is, if they feel that there is a safety issue with a driver that they would need to get the medical personnel headed that way as quickly as possible, they will throw the caution as quickly as they possibly can. But they seemed a little lethargic with it this time, a little more lethargic than they have been in the past when there's been a situation like that where it's you've probably needed to get the medical personnel there ASAP. So I'm not really sure what the delay there was. I don't know what they were waiting on, because you could clearly tell he's on his roof and was going to need some help. I think we had a little bit of beef in the Beef 300. Uh, Jeffrey Earnhardt and Parker Kligerman towards the end of the race. Uh, Parker Kligerman cleared himself into Jeffrey Earnhardt, which cut Jeffrey Earnhardt's right side tire because he hit the wall, which... I thought it was interesting. You would think he'd cut the left front from the right rear fender of Clearman's car, but ended up cutting the right side tire from hitting the wall. And they met each other after the race and talked it out. And I think Jeffrey Earnhardt is Dale Jr.'s guest on the Dale Jr. media this weekend. So that'll be interesting to hear Jeffrey Earnhardt's side of it. Is he? I didn't know that. Okay. They, yeah, that'll be interesting to, uh, to hear the Dale Jr. download this week. But, uh, yeah, that um, I, it's it's typical post race tempers. wasn't really much that came out of it. Not like they had a fight or anything. They just yelled at each other for a few seconds and and walked away. So, I I don't consider that to be something that <laughs> uh, was super noteworthy after this race. It's just. Jeffrey Earnhardt being mad and Parker Kligerman going, hey, it's the end of the race. I'm doing what I got to do. Get out of line a couple times and 
trying to make something happen. He was about the only car in the field that decided to do that for the last 20 laps until mm -hmm. the JRM fiasco, but nobody went with him, and that was sort of frustrating to watch from a fan point of view. Mm -hmm. But I think that's all we got on the Xfinity race. Uh, Tyler, was there anything else you wanted to talk about on that? Uh, not a lot from the rest of the Xfinity race. Uh, we do have Fontana Auto Club Saturday. 5 p.m. Eastern on FS1. That'll be the last race on the big Fontana track, which, I don't know. We'll see how it goes. I'm disappointed that we're getting rid of one of the Fontana-style tracks because I don't think Michigan's nearly as good of a track as no, Fontana it's not. has been No, it's not. Not even recently. close. But at the same time, maybe the new Fontana will be cool. I guess we'll find out. I mean, I'm sure it will be. It'll be a short track. From what I've seen of the designs, it's basically a combination of Bristol and Martinsville. So it could be really good. I'm not saying the new design won't be good. I just wish, because Fontana tends to be the better race among the two-mile tracks. So if they were going to do this to a two-mile track, I really wish they would have done this to Michigan. And I'm very disappointed that they're not, and they're leaving Michigan, but they're doing this to the better two-mile track. So... It is what it is, but we can enjoy the last race at the Two Mile Auto Club and hopefully continue to enjoy it once it is a short track. I have a theory about what's going to happen with this, and we can circle back to this whenever... But it's going to suck because the Gen 7 Cup cars are terrible on short tracks? Well, no, hopefully they've got the short track program figured out by 2025 because it's not going to be on the schedule next year while they do the reconfiguration. So I would hope they have short tracks figured out by 2025. But my theory is that they will debut the new auto club as the clash in 2025. So it'll start the season. It'll still be in the LA market. That'll be next year. will be the final race at the Coliseum. And this is still me speculating. I don't know this. Next year would be the last race of the Coliseum. They will debut the new Auto Club as the Clash to start the season in 2025. And then Auto Club, new Auto Club, will be the season finale from 2025 going forward. That way they can have the season finale in the L.A. market and in the season in Southern California. I do think that having it there would be a little bit more entertaining than phoenix oh it'd be much more entertaining i don't care how bad they screw up this track it cannot be worse than phoenix <laughs> it such, just can't such a boring race to end the season oh it's terrible and i mean they gave phoenix the championship race because it's they improved the facilities at the track and it's a great fan experience there now I'm not knocking the fan experience. I'm knocking the race product because the race product has been terrible. Uh, but that's the reason they gave Phoenix the championship is because it's such a great fan experience now. And it, it's one of those things where you can go and if you're at the race, you don't even really care that the race was that bad because you had such a good time at the the race experience. And avoiding all the rattlesnakes. Oh, no, that's a main attraction going up on Rattlesnake Hill. <laughs> not not a fan. I'll no? Pass. I'll take my Indianapolis Motor Speedway before I go deal with rattlesnakes. We'll yeah, watch, watch there'll be race. rattlesnakes at IMS this year. Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, let's look at the Cup Series results for the Daytona 530-mile race this year because of overtime. Uh, Ricky Stenhouse Jr. getting the win. 
I have more to say about that later. Joey Logano in second, Christopher Bell third, Chris Buescher in fourth, then Alex Bowman, AJ Allmendinger in sixth, Daniel Suarez in seventh, kind of coming out of nowhere, Ryan Blaney in eighth, somehow after getting wrecked, Ross Chastain in ninth, and Riley Herbst in tenth. Riley Herbst ended up in the top ten? Riley Herbst did end up in the top ten. See, I haven't even looked at the results before now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is that is amazing to me. Riley Herbst top ten in a Rick Ware car. That is Daytona for you. Oh, and Ryan Blaney got demolished in one of the earlier wrecks, and they cut the front fender off, and he finished eighth because. And he was dynamics. in that last lap wreck too. Yeah, I always think it's funny you got these aerodynamic cup cars, and then they start taking a hammer and a chainsaw to it. Mm-hmm. Ricky Stenhouse Jr. with the win. Kind of came out of nowhere in the last 15 to 20 laps, I would say. Um, Didn't do a whole lot in the beginning of the race and just showed up at the end and Daytonaed his way into a Daytona 500. Joey Logano and Ricky Stenhouse were at the front of the field and they didn't destroy every single car (laughs) in all four series. I don't know how this happened. I don't know. Stenhouse seems like he's gotten a little more tame in recent years after getting his whole uh, Recky Spinhouse nickname. I haven't really noticed him being all that overly aggressive in recent years. Uh, He's just kind of been there and methodical. But you take out the fact that he was very reckless in his early years and did cause a lot of accidents on these races. He's still a good super speedway racer. Uh, His two wins before this were at Daytona and Talladega. So he knows how to race on super speedways. He knows how to work the draft. So it wasn't super surprising that he was up front at the end of this. As long as he avoids the wrecks, I expect him to be up front by the end of these races. But it was very cool to see a jtg doherty win only the second win ever for that team so great to see them or second cup win ever for them so great to see them uh pick up that win and uh pick it up on the uh, the biggest stage in the cup series so congratulations both to ricky stenhouse and to jtg doherty uh, for the big win um this was such a weird race though because we started off early with the longest green flag run to start the Daytona 500 in 15 years, the entire first stage went green. We had a green flag pit stop in the middle of stage one. And I think we had more green flag pit stops on top of that. I really want to see how long we would have gone green had the stage break not happened. It very much annoyed me that there was a stage break there because I really wanted to see if we could have gone the majority of this race without a caution. Uh, But that, isn't a thing anymore we can't have a caution free race anymore because we can't have nice things now yeah this stage break definitely kind of buzz killed a long green flag run but at the same time how interesting is it to watch cars go in circles in a single file line no i mean it wasn't interesting by any means outside of the fact that i was just curious how long it could have lasted but no Just watching it, no, it wasn't that exciting to watch. We definitely got our fill of cautions and wrecks by the end of it. The pendulum swung 180 degrees by the end of this race, and it was just wreck after wreck after wreck. 
and became what we've become accustomed to at Daytona and Talladega in the last few years, why I've gotten very tired of super speedway racing because it's not racing anymore. It's just wrecking and avoiding wrecks. And that's, that's all it is. And it's, it's gotten very annoying. I think it's given NASCAR the bad rep as far as just being in a series of wrecks. And that's why anybody watches it. And, for the most part, for the super speedway races, that is pretty accurate. The yep. only time anything interesting happens is when people wreck. And it's it it's annoying to see that on a world scale, especially with NASCAR trying to promote themselves to other people. But you're always going to have these crash compilations of the super speedway races, and it's always going to look comical because these cars don't have brakes good enough to do anything at high speeds like that. And as soon as somebody spins, everybody's getting piled in. It's just sad, I think. I, I have a big problem with super speedway racing in NASCAR right now. I I understand why it all happens. I understand why we go there. But gosh... It's such a bad way to start the season every year. There's mm-hmm. always something with Daytona that happens every time we go to Daytona or Talladega. And for that to be the start of your season, your Indy 500, your 24-hour Le Mans, really? Every year. I don't understand why this is the way NASCAR wants to promote themselves. Um, it's the biggest race of the year, yet it's kind of the most embarrassing race of the year in a lot of ways. Um, And it didn't used to be that way. 10, 15 years ago, this race was fantastic. It was so much fun to watch. It wasn't a crash fest. There were crashes. You would have one big one, maybe two, and that was pretty much the extent of it. You'd have a couple smaller wrecks here or there, but for the most part, it was just good, solid plate racing, and it was so exciting to watch. Now... It's just, it's two single file trains and avoiding wrecks. That's all it is. And I even really enjoyed the era of super speedway plate racing that was the tandem draft system. I I know a lot of people hated that. And it was marred by that crash in 2009 that got Brad Keselowski his win. I think that's just, when people think of the tandem draft period of cup series racing i think that's just automatically what they think of but as a whole it was interesting to see you get four or five pairs of cars going for the win at the end of the race and it wasn't just who's leading whatever line you'd have a i mean they had a four wide finish at talladega Mm -hmm. one year i I thought it was quite interesting and it really helped mitigate a lot of the giant 30 car crashes i know somebody put a stat out before the race that was talking about the number of cars involved in crashes in Daytona and Talladega plate races. I think in the past several Daytona 500s, there's been 30-plus cars involved in crashes, but that's only in the past five or six years. You go back earlier than that, it was only 10 or 11, Mm -hmm. usually. I think the average number of cars in a Daytona 500 wreck has gone up 40% since they put in stage racing. So I'm not saying that stage racing is the reason for that because I think you see this a lot of, a lot of times drivers just, some people just stop 
caring about the stage and just drop out. I think you saw that a couple times in the cup race. I know it happened a little bit in the Xfinity race, but a lot of these guys, you get a win in the Daytona 500, as long as you don't screw around the rest of the season, you're automatically locked into the playoffs. Who cares mm-hmm. so about a stage win? So, especially when there's there's only one card that's going to get a single playoff point each stage. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people on the plate races drop out, and it, it makes it for an interesting finish to the stage, I guess. But I'm kind of with you. I would have rather seen it stay green than have that first stage caution. I know they got rid of stage breaks for road courses this year, which is, I think is a good step. I think there's some races, like a lot of the mile-and-a-half tracks, you kind of need the stages just to make it interesting at some point. Yeah. But super speedways are always going to get interesting eventually. Um, and seeing green flag pit stops at a plate race, very refreshing in my opinion. I mm-hmm. always think it's interesting to watch. The communication that goes on there, you get to see him with the hands out the window and all that. And I think I had multiple like three three green flag pit stop rotations three or four yeah series, something like that yeah which almost unheard of in the cup series recently mm-hmm. um interesting to watch it puts a spotlight on the pit crew and being able to get down the pit road speed did have a couple pit road speeding penalties i know kyle bush got dinged once in the second stage and ruined his chance for the most part of getting a good finish in that race and oh well I, I would have liked to have seen Kyle do well, but it happens. All right, so that's all I think I've got for Daytona. Tyler, you got anything else you want to talk about for Daytona before we move on to Fontana and predictions? Nothing else here. All right, Fontana, the final race on the big oval, 2.30 p.m. Eastern on Fox this Sunday. Check it out. Should be a good one. California has actually been a decent race more often than not lately, so it should be pretty good as Doc returns. Prediction time. Tyler, we'll start with you. Who you got for the Xfinity race at Fontana on Saturday? The Xfinity series, I think I might go with Sam Mayer. He did pretty well last year, and I think this year he's got something something up its sleeve after getting taken out at Daytona. Something up his sleeve and something to prove after a not-so-great year last year. It wasn't terrible, but in a junior motorsports car, it probably should have been better. So I think he's out to prove something this year. So that's probably a good pick. Uh, Me, I'm going with the man that not only won this race last year, but also won it in his last full season in Xfinity in 2019, I think it was. Uh, Mr. Cole Custer has been fantastic at Fontana in the Xfinity series. So I think that is a very easy pick to go with. So I'm going to go with Cole Custer on to the cup series. Tyler, who you got for the cup race? Tell you what, I think I'm going to go with Ryan Blaney for the cup series. I think uh, most times the Fords do pretty well at Fontana. Mm -hmm. I know Kyle Larson won last year and kind of ran away with it for the most part, but I'm going to go with Ryan Blaney. I think he's got some. All right, solid pick. Just go ahead and steal my Daytona pick. I see how it is. Um, I mean, I guess I didn't really do anything with him in Daytona. so Maybe our picks won't wreck each other this week. <laughs> Maybe not. Um, so, cup race, I'm going to go with 
the man that won this race last year, I think he goes back-to-back, gets his first win of 2023, and that is the 2021 champion, Mr. Kyle Larson. Goes back to victory lane in California, as if you're watching the video version and you're seeing my my camera go black, Doc decided to walk in front of the monitor and his tail was swishing back and forth in front of the camera. So the fun of living with a cat is now I have to keep him from getting back here on the set. Fun times. I think it's a good time to wrap up. So we talked about a lot tonight and I think we're both uh, about ready to uh, call it a night. So that uh, has been about it. So that is Tyler. I am Garth. This has been Rookie Stripes. I'm racing news now.